This Dharma Talk by Casey Howe was recorded at the 2018 Joshua Tree Retreat offered by Mindful Way. For more information about retreats and other offerings, visit www.mindful-way.com. So welcome everybody. As I was mentioning the other day, when we're listening to these talks, you can listen with the entirety of your being. No need to listen conceptually or try to remember or maybe as you hear things, think about where they fit in outside of the now or where maybe you're going to use it or something like that. If we notice any way what sticks, sticks, you know, what is meant to land will land already. So almost like listening, yeah, more with your spirit than with your actual perceptive mind. So I'm going to talk tonight about non-grasping mind and maybe a quite simple teaching, really. Um, this non-grasping, it's what we're doing all the time here already. Every moment of practice is an opportunity for non-grasping mind uh, to arise. So we're going to be looking a little bit deeper into that. One thing that came up uh, in the interviews today uh, was a lot, of course, we all relate to this thinking mind. How many people have a lot of thinking mind? All the time, all the time, this thinking mind. And also the topic came up is that being that we're sitting here, maybe we don't get a chance to think about our life and, and we all love planning. And so there's some clarity around thinking sometimes. And so the questions that came up were, you know, is it okay to think? Is it okay to ponder these certain things? And of course it's okay, we could do whatever we like, but the opportunity to think is there all the time out, outside of a retreat. We could think, and we do think, and we're kind of stuck in thinking all the time. And so like we're in the atmosphere of that mental plane atmosphere all the time. And we're all thought addicts too. Like we love to think. Yeah, all of us, thought addicts, Baba, all the time, following this, following that. So this container here gives us the opportunity to sink beneath that, to sink beneath that, the atmosphere, this, this mental atmosphere that we're just caught up in. You know, it's kind of like I envision the, the orbit 
uh, all the satellites are up in the orbit, you know, all that clutter and stuff. Or like the ocean, and we're just stuck kind of in the surface the whole time. And we don't get a chance to, it's like dropping a stone in the water, we don't get a chance to move into the depths. We're caught. And we actually kind of, kind of like that. We like the ups and downs. And even the stillness can feel funny. You know, like, what's, what next? You know? So this is very rare that life isn't pressing. Like, you don't need to think right now about all the other stuff that's happening in life. You don't need to. And even if you did think about everything and got everything lined up, you had your whole life figured out. Conceptually, even if that was possible, it's a complete unknown, obviously, like how long that would last. You know, our life, like Beth mentioned, the Four Noble Truths and the truth that suffering exists. So our life is like a shopping cart with one messed up wheel. You know, one wheel, like this shopping cart and one wheel's messed up, and you always grab that one. But, you know, that's our life, that there's always that one will that's a little off, be financial or health or relationships or, you know, our spiritual life, we're not getting to that. The opportunity here is how to, to work with life with that messed up will, or two or three, like sometimes they hit, you know, all at once. So again, very, very rare opportunity to dive beneath that. There's nothing wrong with that. We could think this whole retreat away, but there is an opportunity to dip beneath that and to investigate what's there. So this non-grasping mind, uh, it is speaking of the Four Noble Truths that Beth hit upon a little bit that there is suffering and the second noble truth that there is there is a cause of this suffering this craving or or attachment and luckily like buddha didn't stop there he just kept looking there's an antidote for that so he said okay there there's this cause and then there's also a remedy for this and this is non-attachment or non-clinging. So Buddha ended up teaching, they say, I don't know how they came up with this number, but 84,000 teachings. I don't know who counted that, but it's kind of just like, he taught a lot. We'll just put a number on it. But if we, if we look, everything is in support of just this one teaching. And again, this is not really Buddhist at all. It's just looking at our mind, right? And how do we relieve suffering? From the looks of it, and I might be wrong on this, it's kind of my own thing, but the only way we suffer, there's only one way to suffer, and that's when we believe a thought. When we believe a thought. Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that Someone's going to take their life today because they believe the thought. 
So how crucial is it? How crucial is it to be able to choose what we want to think about and what we want to let go? How crucial is that? It could be between life and death. Not only a physical life and death, but when we're sleepwalking through life, just not awake at all. We're not even there for our life at all. That's a type of death. The Buddha once said that. Don't mean to bring up a whole bunch of Buddha's statements, but he said, you know, it's better to spend one day awake than a than a hundred years asleep. One day of doing retreat life practice, just watching the mind, practicing mindfulness, what we're doing, better to do that just one day than spending a hundred years asleep. So everything is in support of this, this non-clinging. And so why is that? You know, because this is the part that could lead to freedom, to liberation. So I, I thought I'd go through the definition of mindfulness again. And I know that sounds like, you know, back to ground zero, and there's many mindfulness teachers in here and MBSR teachers in here that maybe heard it time and time again and teach it. But there's also a lot of different um, uh, different avenues on how people got to this retreat. And so it'd be nice to have some kind of continuity that we're all on the same page with that as I go into um, different aspects of this non-clinging. So I'll use the definition that, that he was was using the other day, which is paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So this first part, paying attention. This is huge, huge, paying attention. How many times do we not even do that, just, just paying attention? So this waking up piece is absolutely vital, obviously. And this piece, this waking up has two pieces. So this is the mindfulness aspect, and then with the sustainability of paying attention, which is the more concentration aspect of the mind. So this mindfulness aspect of the mind, this is not mindfulness as the meditation. I'm talking about the, the faculty of the mind that is the watcher. So mindfulness is the vigilance of the mind. It's always watching. Am I on the object or did I leave the object? Where am I? Mindfulness is what goes out and gets the mind when it is veered off course. Yeah? And then concentration is what holds the mind down on the object. So when, when people say, I can't meditate, they're usually saying, I can't concentrate. I have crazy monkey mind. It doesn't stay that long, right? It goes off and away. 
meditation is all of that. Meditation is, is staying on the object, leaving the object, noticing that we left the object, coming back. Sustained voluntary attention. So it's all of that. So in that way, it's like, like playing basketball or like practicing basketball. Like if you're shooting hoops and you're practicing, you don't count just the ones that go in, you count them all. I mean, you count even the misses, yeah? It's still practice, you're honing your skill, yeah? So we go away from the object, notice, coming back. Every time, every time that we notice, then we're practicing the muscle of mindfulness. Every time we notice. And then holding the mind down on the object and being vigilant. So paying attention to what? So this came up too in some of the interviews today is that what's the difference between mindfulness and some other, other types of meditation is we're paying attention to the present moment, which means we're paying attention to what is given already. We're not adding anything in on to what's automatically arising. It's what is given this moment, what is automatically appearing in this moment. Even our breath is happening automatically. We're watching what is naturally arising. So some other meditation techniques come from the pure concentration schools. So these are like visualization meditations, mantra meditations. But you see, we're adding on to the moment and then, and then focusing on what we add on. There's no problem with that. Not at all. The only difference being is that most of those techniques you can't take with you. They're fantastic if you're on the cushion. It's like we could, one way to put it is if we build a house around our meditation, sometimes we call that meditating in a house. If you meditate in a house, everything has to, you build a house around your meditation. The only problem with that is that if you throw a stick of dynamite into a house, what happens? It blows up, yeah? So you're, you build your house around your meditation and then the phone rings and then psh, it blows up. Yeah, because that's not what you're focusing on. But mindfulness practice has been called the yoga of space. The yoga of space. So we're meditating like space. What happens if you light dynamite, light it off in space? There's nothing to blow up, yeah? See, with no home, with the meditation, anything can become the object. Mindfulness needs to be mindful of something, but it doesn't matter what. We could shift and we can move. Whatever, we're cultivating the mindfulness itself. It could be a continuity of mindfulness, whether we're focusing on the breath, we're doing breath meditation. 
dogs barking, we can move and do dog barking meditation. The continuity of mindfulness never ceases. There's no such thing as distraction. Just moving, moving the awareness. The meditation itself, itself is extremely stable. The other great piece about this is that if we meditate for an hour a day, let's say if you're doing the concentration meditations or a mantra, again, nothing wrong with any of those, kundalini practice, anything like that. Let's say you do an hour a day, and then 23 hours, crazy monkey mind. Blah, blah, caught up in story, just going with the ebb and flow, asking your thoughts how you're feeling. They tell you how you're feeling. You say, okay, just going with it. How, you, how am I feeling? Look into your emotions. They tell you how you're feeling, and you say, okay. When you come back after doing that, if you come back the next day for that hour meditation, there's not continuity in place. It's really difficult to build up continuity that way. So regardless, taking mindfulness with us is extremely beneficial no matter what, what path you're on, what, what practice that you're doing. So we're paying attention to what? To what is here in the now. Paying attention to the present moment on purpose. On purpose. This is my favorite piece. Sometimes it gets brushed over, I see, in some like descriptions. It's my favorite piece on purpose. What's that mean? So if there was a loud noise outside, we would automatically, innately, habitually, there's a really loud noise, we would just all, you know, pay attention. But we really wouldn't be conscious of it. We would just do it. Yeah? Or it's like the ultimate, you know, masters the a dog and a treat, you know, have a treat and a dog. The dog is so focused on the treat, like amazing, right? And you move every which way. It's incredible, like the attention aspect of, of a dog. So we can think like maybe that's it, Zen master. Be like, be like my dog, yeah? Um, but... Is, is the dog conscious of consciousness? Is it conscious of actually doing it, doing this? Is it saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm present? You know, is it showing up in that way? And that's why it's my favorite piece, because what shows up when we're doing something on purpose is what it's all about. This on purpose means that there's an aspect of us that's showing up that maybe wasn't available to, for us to access before. What shows up? What is on purpose? What part of us is there? What is that? That's part of this investigation. 
Then the next piece is our favorite part, non-judgment. This is the easy part, right? Nobody has a problem. <laughs> Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally, or the non-judgmental part, super easy. <clears throat> I think that the non-judgmental part is actually why we don't practice mindfulness. I think if it wasn't for this part, we'd all practice mindfulness. We'd all just be hanging out with what is. But it's the fact that we don't necessarily like what is, that pulls us out of being present with what is into distraction. When the going gets tough, the tough get distracted. Pull out the phone or whatever, yeah? This is really subtle. I mean, we could be just you know, sitting in the car, driving, unpleasant emotion or something arises, a thought arises, it's unpleasant. We don't really notice unpleasant, but we do notice, we might not even notice any of this, right? But it arises and then our hand moves towards the radio. The radio turns on, our mind moves into song, the emotion that was arising gets stuffed further and further down. <laughs> Paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Now, if we look, that which is looking on purpose already is without judgment. The on-purpose part, that which is showing up to look, is already without judgment. Bare awareness is already without judgment. Accepting everything as it is. It's this non-judgment part is saying just stay there. Consciousness, and this is a neat aspect of consciousness, and where love and consciousness intersect is that consciousness, bare awareness, is already accepting everything as it is, just as it is. This is just like, this is just what love does. Consciousness is not judging the tree outside, or the speaker, or us. Everything has a place here, just as it is. But it's when we add to it, you know, so this is what we watch out for, paying attention to the present moment, uh, for non-judgmentally, is we're watching out for when that judgment arises. So if we stop right there, in fact, the moment that we wake up, we're, already, we're just we're right there. We're already done. We're already paying attention. We're, con we're conscious because we did it. And it's automatically non-judgmental. Automatically. It's only when a thought arises and we follow that, then we move away. So that's the definition or instruction for mindfulness. Now, is that mindfulness? 
No, of course, that's not mindfulness. That's not even close to mindfulness. There's barely a trace of mindfulness in any of that. Maybe a tiny, tiny bit. Mindfulness is your experience of that instruction or of that definition. Yeah? Your experience of that. Your experience of it. So thinking that that is mindfulness is just like reading, reading a book on tennis and thinking you know how to play tennis. Or even worse, like teaching tennis. <laughs> I know, I read about it, I could do it. But you know that if you actually played tennis, it would be a way different feel for it, you know? You know, it's like traveling to a different country. If you travel to a different country and you came back and you were telling your friends about it, would they know what it's like to be in Italy? No, no idea. You'd have to take them. Because it's part of your beingness, yeah? If you take a trip that going to a new place, part of your beingness, yeah? So it's like this. So it's our experience of the instruction. This is mindfulness. So this non-grasping mind part, it's actually quite simple where it is. And we're doing it all the time, like I mentioned. So the very moment that a thought arises, an emotion arises, something, and you have that opportunity, I think Beth was calling it a choice, a choice point. So let's just say a thought arises, you recognize it, and then you release it, and then you move to, let's say, the breath. That is absolutely revolutionary. Unbelievable. I know it sounds so incredibly simple, but unbelievable. You've noticed a thought and you released non-grasping, released and brought it back somewhere else. I think it was Osho that said, the mind is a great servant, but a horrible master. <laughs> but right now, until we have that capability, it's the master, for sure. This gives us the opportunity to turn it around. So in that moment, in that moment of release, where it's infinite potentiality, in that moment of release, take your most suffering thought that you ever had. What are you without that thought? The most suffering thought that you could that you that you've had, what are you without that thought? The problem is, is that when we release that thought and we're resting in this new place of just awareness, yeah? 
And you could check in and just keep your eyes open. This is not esoteric or anything. Where does your awareness end? Or even begin? You notice how infinite that is. You can't find the end of it. Yeah? So our container is very, very big. So usually when we're attached, this craving, this craving attached mind, we become very, very small. In fact, we become what is arising within this infinite awareness. But this infinite awareness, like space, could hold a trillion stars. Like space holds a trillion stars effortlessly. There's no problem. Like easy. Space is like, this is easy. Trillion <laughs> stars, no problem. No problem. Now what happens if, like space, if one planet was on fire and, this, and space started to freak out and think that it was like the planet that was on fire? Oh my gosh. Yeah. It wouldn't make much sense. So like this, when we're resting in the awareness, and that awareness is infinite, we could hold what is arising in a much, much different way. You know, Sharon Salzberg uses the analogy of salt, a tablespoon of salt in eight ounces of water. You drink that very salty. But if we put that into a five-gallon bucket, not so bad. Or what, in, what if we did that into a swimming pool? Can't taste it. We could also use a sky analogy. The sky never thinks it's the storm. The storm arises, the sky watches. But we clamp down on, we forget about this awareness. We're so habituated, we're such thought addicts and emotion addicts, you know, that we slam down on top of it. You know, we self-identify, we jump onto it. So we don't have that spaciousness. And the difficulty is, is that when we release that thought and we become that, it doesn't feel like much. In fact, there's really nothing there. That, you know, especially at first, there's nothing really there. So it's just like we just put our toe in the water. So we don't realize the magnitude of what we just did. We don't realize it at first. And so like we're sitting here in meditation and you're like, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm noticing and I'm coming back. I'm noticing, coming back. And nothing's, nothing's happening. You know? Like, where's the show? Like, where's the enlightenment? What is this? But it's like the sun coming over the top of the mountains in the morning. In the morning, if you just see the sun rays coming on, over the top of the mountain, you say, is that the sun? Yeah. It's the sun. But are you getting the full strength of the sun? Do you feel its heat? Do you, do you see its brightness? No, 
you have to wait a little while. Yeah? So it takes patience to really, really marinate and sit with this. We open the door to this new world, but, you know, this concentration aspect so important. And, you know, we emphasize a lot with mindfulness. Mindfulness is fantastic, and it can have a sense of effortlessness. But also remember, too, that sometimes, like Beth was talking about right effort, we really need to focus and really sustain that attention and come on retreats and do this. Because we're opening the door to this whole new vast expanse, but we're not hanging out very long. It's like this whole world's available, maybe in a, a universe, maybe like infinite universes. And you open the door and you hang out for like 10 seconds. <laughs> you shut the door and then plan your life and then come back and say, oh, are you? Oh, I'm just checking. <laughs> come back and then go off. And you do that for an hour and you're like, that, I didn't really feel much. Really wasn't much there. We stew and marinate in our thoughts, emotions, and body sensations all day, every day. And we say that not doing that takes a lot of effort. And we got it backwards, you know? It's effort. Wouldn't you say it? it's effort not to grab onto a thought? Yeah. It's quite silly. It's the same thing as like when we diet. You know, we're looking at something that we shouldn't eat, and it becomes very difficult to not do. Yeah? Sometimes not doing is the hardest thing. But our natural state is non-doing. It is often referred to our nat finding the natural state or our true nature. The true nature of the mind is not grasping. And this is good news because if we thought it was linear, we'd be in big trouble, right? Because how many times are you aware during this retreat and how many times are you lost in thought? Yeah, it's, it's not in balance, yeah? So if we go toe-to-toe -to -toe and we go to war and say, you know, I'm, I'm asleep, I'm awake, I'm asleep, I'm awake. You might get discouraged. But if we realize is that our true nature is non-grasping, that we actually have to go outside of our true nature and actually grab onto this. We've habituated that. You know when you get into a bad habit, it's like, it's just a habit, it's like habit forming. And then once you stop doing it, like or coffee or something like this, once you stop doing it, you're like, oh, I don't really need that. But I did it for so long, it becomes habit. It's hard to not do it. So we've done it for so long, it's hard to not do it. And we're stuck in that endless cycle of grasping. And it takes away the ability for compassion and wisdom to arise. Because if we're stuck in the habitual pattern, then no spaciousness arises and we can't drop in to that spaciousness, the dynamic compassion and wisdom. So then we get stuck in the same habits. 
So in, in, these, in this retreat, or in meditation, all of our practice, it's unbelievably important to continue to practice this, this releasing, this opening. Time and time again to strengthen that muscle over and over. I've talked way too long on one section. <laughs> That's just a thought. That's just a thought. That's what you just told me. I have to release that. So maybe, because we stop at 8.30, yeah? Don't worry about the time. Yeah, I know. But it's okay. So so maybe for um, we can go into an actual meditation, and I'm actually going to do a little guided part. So you know, part of this non-grasping mind is that we're grasping onto well, there's two twofold. Outside of ourselves, we grasp onto um, our idea about something or even the idea about ourself, yeah? So this is one way outward and externally, like how can we uh, make non-grasping mind or attachment easier, is that if we realize that um, the things that we're looking at, that we're adding on to them, let me use an example like, so, so this is my this is my phone. So this is problematic already because I already said my. So <laughs> if I add mine, um, you can see attachment arising. Yeah, it's like if this phone gets stolen, you don't care. Not your phone. I care. My phone. <laughs> yeah. Now who did that? Like the phone in and of itself is just sitting there. But the attachment came from where? Like, I, I made all that up. You know, I put the attachment into the phone. The phone itself has, there's no attachment there. But I added onto it. Yeah? I just saw this YouTube video of this 14-year-old girl who won this huge prize for the theory of relativity. And there was this truck driving down a road, and there was a siren. And... Theoretically, people were standing all around the highway when this truck was driving, and so they all heard a different sound. It was all relative to them. And so the sound itself uh, wasn't one singular thing. It, it was dependent upon how everyone else was hearing it. So same thing, like, like objects. So we impute onto them and then, so, and we impute, a lot of times we're imputing function. So if we call this a phone, which it's really not, like it's, it's just for like a paperweight, right? But like, I would call it a phone, you would maybe call it a phone in Western culture, but if I gave it to like an Aboriginal tribe, 
they wouldn't say, oh, an iPhone 6 Plus, how awesome. You know, it would be different. They would look at it different. Yeah. So it, it's all relative, but in the function of it, once we impute functionality, which we call this a phone because it functions like a phone for an impermanent amount of time, <laughs> and it's interdependent because there's no phone in the phone, it's a collection of parts. There's actually no phone in the phone. But when we impute the function, then we get attached to the function. So if this stopped working, so which it does, damn it, like, why, why won't the phone work, right? So we get attached to the function, how it performs, and our label of it. So this, this is very, very precious because it could take away a lot of the grasping when we realize like, how much control we have over our imputations on top of what is. It just is. And we just are. So like, when we talk about like, non-self, well, there's no permanent, fixed self. Of course, we're existing and all that. But we get attached to the imputations of the labels we give ourselves. Like all the different labels, the different roles you could think of. Son, son, daughter, father, mother, teenager, adult, prof your profession. The one I like to use is like athlete, like someone who I, I self-identify as athlete, and then their athleteness gets taken away. See, then they're attached to that, self-identified with that. Or we also impute like boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. See, we impute that onto something that is dynamic, impermanent, shifting, changing. But we impute husbandness. And what happens when your husband stopped act, stops acting like a husband? Like the phone doesn't work. You're like, you're, wait, you're a husband. Why aren't you acting like a husband? I imputed you husband. But now you're not working. It's like, your husband's broken. But he's not the husband. You know, he's a son. You know, he could be a father. He could be his profession. He could be this. He could be that. He's like the sound coming, that, that truck driving, that sound. And it's all relative to who's listening. Husband's like that. So much. Yeah. So this makes it much easier when we look at it in this way that we're not grasping to an actual thing. We're grasping onto the concept of the thing, which is totally within our own control to see how much we want to impute onto that. And so that is looking at the true nature of what is externally. And then internally, we're going to do a little meditation that Internally, we're looking to what is arising inside and to see if we can see the true nature of that. And very generally speaking, we could look into the triangle of awareness, which many of you are aware of. It's our thoughts, emotions, and body sensations. So the, pretty much the entirety of the external phenomena that's processed within us is processed in those ways. If I say, how you doing? Again, you're checking in, right? Let me check in on my thoughts, emotions, body sensations. 
If you're having pleasant thoughts, emotions, and body sensations, you'll say, oh, I'm feeling pretty good. If they're unpleasant, say, oh, I'm not feeling that well. <laughs> not feeling good. So we want to look in with meditation. We can pierce in to see if we could look deeply into those to see their true nature. We're human beings. We have human nature. There's tree nature, bird nature. Thoughts have nature too. What is thought nature? It's maybe good to know because they're super powerful like on how they direct us. Yeah. So we'll do a little meditation and we're just going to look uh, into thought nature. And this is going to help us as we look into the nature of thought. Really help move into non-grasping mind. And as we go through this meditation, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I'm going to ask you just to look. Looking is different than analyzing. And you just look and see. Just like, say, look at the chair. You just look at the chair. You already noticed the chair. So just like anything else, no need to go into a really deep analytical flow of thought here. So you're allowing your eyes to close if they're not closed already. And maybe giving yourself permission not to do anything for a few moments, not even practicing meditation. Just being a being, a human being, not a human doing.
And as you sit, you could turn your attention to your thoughts, the thought stream. Letting them come, letting them go. And as you're there, paying attention to the thoughts, see if you could find out where they're coming from. Where do they arise from? Just looking. And you're looking, not thinking about where you think they might come from. So thoughts like from in my brain or something like this. Actually looking to see, can you see where they arise from? And then once they do arise, looking at where they abide. So 
So abiding, where, where do they hang out for you to recognize them? Where is that? Would you say that they're abiding inside, like inside your body, outside? Where exactly are they located? And as you hear the sound of the siren, where do you hear that? Going back, where do these thoughts abide?
And when these thoughts cease, how do they cease? Where do they go? When the thoughts cease, where do they go? As thoughts pass by, do some thoughts weigh more than other thoughts? How much does, does a thought weigh?
Thank you for listening. For more information, visit www.mindful-way.com.